he kai kai akuringa. There is food at the end of my hands. Engai wi o te motu he tono tēne ki a tātou me uru mai ki tēne hōtaka a te ahikā. Ko Justine Murray, ahau. This is Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National, your weekly fix of Kaupapa Māori. Coming up, there's something very familiar with the range of cooks and chefs that we feature here on the show, and that is, as children, they are inspired by their mums in the first place to become a chef. Cooking was a passion from a, from a young age. I won my first um, cooking competition when I was five, making pancakes at the local gala day with the help of mum, of course. But uh, yeah, we got the first prize from there. Cooking became a passion. That's Chef Charles Royal, who took me on one of his food tours normally reserved for tourists. It's run as part of his Rotorua-based business, Kinaki Wild Herbs. That's coming up. Dotted around Rotorua are ngāwha, natural hot mineral pools, heated, obviously, because of the thermal activity in the area. According to the locals, there are definite therapeutic benefits to the body after having, or rather, experiencing a ngāwha. About 25 minutes' drive from Rotorua, if you're heading towards Whakatane, is Soda Springs, two large ngāwha that is proving popular for tourists and the local whānau. Way back, it was just, an, it was just all open. And um, prior to that, it just got just started getting degraded and everything. So the whānau decided to get, get together and mahi mahi on the whenua. Kia ora, Pitipi, and a tour of Soda Springs will end tonight's show. Machu, Eli, James, Marlon and Chris make up the band 660. They're currently on their tour around Aotearoa. Tonight we'll feature a few of these songs from their self-titled album. That's what's coming up in this edition of Te Ahika. You're listening to Te Ahika, Radio National. Pātaka Moa has a background in resource and environmental planning. As an uri of Ngāti Pariraukawa and Ngāti Raukawa, iwi in the Horofenua region, his work includes the restoration of Mangapauri stream in Ōtaki. Our Changing World producer, Veronica Maduna, had a conversation with Pātaka when she visited the area. Mangapodi stream was used as a Pātaka kai, or lada, for the nearby whānau some 40 years ago. It's deteriorated over time, but Pātaka is optimistic about the future of the resource. He begins here in Te Reo Māori and explains the geographical makeup of the streams, which flows from the Tarirua Ranges. Now, there are different parts to the stream. Different names include Te Awahohunu, Haruatai, Mangapauri and Tingai. Karere kawa na tēnei wai, mai ngā pai maunga o Tararua, uh, ko Te Awahohunu, ko Haruatai, ko Mangapauri, tai atu ki te ngai. Mai taua wāhira, uh, karere tonu tēnei wai, i ngā wā o mua, ki te rangi uru, uh, ki te awa ōtaki, ngari tēnei wā, ka hāre kopikopiko nei, ki te awa waitohu, tai atu ki te moana o rau kawakawa, uh, e rere haere nei, tihei mauri ora. We're standing here at a stream that is significant for you personally, but also for the larger community here. Can you describe what we're seeing? Yeah, this is a small lowland uh, 
stream. Um, where we're standing at the moment, it's known as either the Haruatai or the Mangapodi stream. Um, the stream's a uh, spring-fed uh, stream just up and behind Ōtaki uh, on the hillside. Uh, spring-fed, so it's nice and generally clean uh, water. Um, and it flows down through the town uh, and out into a series of uh, wetlands and out into the sea. These days it's uh, not very clean, has a number of pressures on it, um, but it can still run here alongside the, the Mill Road, or what we call Mill Road, and we're standing here behind Rickyville, um, a, a section of the town that's well known to locals as, as Rickyville. This was where Uncle Paddy lived, and lived very much with the stream. Yes, he did. He lived uh, just over behind the, the next fence there. Um, I understand he lived most of his life uh, in that section. He, as a youngster and even as a as a man, would uh, come down to the stream and fetch water. Uh, he played in the stream. He describes the stream as his playground. And I vividly remember interviewing him in his home, in his uh, kitchen, in fact, um, a number of years ago, and saying to him, Uncle Paddy, please, can you describe the, the Mangapodi stream for us? And, and you could see his eyes roll back in his head and just go back into a dreamland somewhere and say, ah, the Mangapodi stream was our playground. And that, I, can, I always remember that statement by Uncle Paddy. It, it truly was his, his playground, and he respected it and cared for it as such. Um, it was a place, as I mentioned, he gathered um, water from, uh, he gathered food from, and in fact they used it as a, as a larder or a fridge, um, and they, they um, stored their tuna heke, or migrational tuna, in, you know, annually, um, and pulled them out as they needed them. But Uncle Paddy, this was Uncle Paddy's home along the stretch of stream. He knew it inside out, back to front. So the stream would have not only supported tuna, but it would have also acted as a as a reservoir to keep the fish alive. Yeah, that's right. We often would go to sites outside of the town to fish for migrational tuna, so we'd generally, uh, people in Ōtaki here would go to a place uh, outside of town um, uh, to fish for their migrational tuna as they migrate on, on the autumn rains. Uh, they're well known for doing that. And they would catch them um, and bring them back in the middle of the night uh, so that the uh, the light of day would not touch their skin. Uh, and they would bring them back and put them in a stream like this, a clear, clean, um, flowing stream um, with plenty of oxygen. Uh, and these tuna, of course, are on their migrational path home, and so they're not eating. Their uh, internal organs have changed um, so that they're, they're not actually after food, so you don't need to, to, uh, to feed your, your tuna in your holding pen or your holding box, but rather they're just sitting there um, and uh, you can pull them out whenever you like, really. And that's what our, our people did, was they brought them back, stored them in a safe, clean place like this and took them as they needed them over the following 12 months or so. How long ago? It's not too long ago. It's hard know. to imagine today, you know, to imagine tuna in the stream now. It is hard to imagine that people had, um, you know, boxes of about a metre by a metre by a metre, about a cubic metre uh, large, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, and they would have them in the stream right here. Um, it's only a generation ago, 20 or 30 years ago possibly, that uh, people were doing this, definitely 50 years ago. Um, 
but uh, and they would have them in here. They knew the the characteristics of the stream were set. They knew this the stream very very well. There wasn't too much change. They trusted the stream, um, and that, that's what I mean. When it's spring fed, it doesn't rise and fall too much. It doesn't have flash floods, um, except for when you stick stormwater and other things in it, and that's what creates the un, un, um, unpredictableness of a, of a stream. And then you lose your box and you lose your catch, and you could be without food for the year. So. Uh, no, those people knew their stream very well. Was tuna considered important because it's such a protein-rich food source? Yes, so we know that tuna was very important as a as a protein, as a source of protein. It was their main source of protein. Um, we have uh, elders of ours who, who say they had a varied diet throughout the week. On a Monday they had tuna, puha and potatoes, and on a Tuesday they had potatoes, puha and tuna, and on a Wednesday they had puha, tuna and potatoes, and it went on like that. You know, tuna was their source of protein. Uh, they knew that it provided them with the um, uh, with the protein they needed. They didn't have the animals once upon a time, and they didn't know the animals. Even once the animals had come, uh, they still knew how to fish for tuna. They knew how to uh, keep it alive in a stream, uh, safe and well. They knew how to uh, uh, preserve tuna, cook it, uh, serve it. They knew tuna very, very well. After being here for a thousand years and all that give or take in isolation, tuna was their main source of protein. So why would you give it up so quickly? Um, we also know that um, tuna provides all sorts of um, fats and oils and, and omegas that are, are essential in the diet, and, and I think our tupuna, well, I know our tupuna knew that as well. What's the situation today? This particular stream you mentioned has quite a few pressures being used as a drain comes to mind for anything from rainwater to actual rubbish. I can see a beer bottle in there right now. Um, but you've also looked at other waterways that are significant to Ngāti Raukawa. Yeah. Still a lot of tuna in those waterways? This uh, stream has deteriorated a lot in the last, uh, I'd say, 30 to 40 years. Um, we have stories of, of people still using this stream. In very recent times, the stream has uh, been been cut off from the community in many ways. Weeds have taken off and uh, the, the bottom has gone from a clean cobbled bottom stream that provides um, uh, insects and, and those lower those forms of life in the lower in the food chain which provide then the food for the for the upper food chain it really has had the the bottom taken out of it um, yep and it's very dirty at the moment as we can see it's not really something you would um, engage with it's one of those streams that you look at and think it definitely is a drain and there are efforts here by local people to um, to try and reconnect with these streams but I think it's it's really difficult when you've got noxious weeds and and uh, things on the banks when you've got not so clean stream when you've got rubbish into it storm water you've got uh, possibly septic tanks along its uh, banks it's really difficult to re-engage with a stream that's polluted uh, like this but that's not to say that it's lost we know streams um, uh, can be revived and can be restored, and so and we know that the local people here would like nothing more than to have it um, flowing cleanly again and to be used again. So it's one of those things I think that might just be asleep at the moment, but we hope that in time um, 
the community and those that represent the community, the regional council and the district council will um, allow the community to, to re-engage with the stream. What would be your vision for the future, not just for this stream, but for the waterways that are of significance to your iwi? Well, our aspirations for all the streams along this coast is to revive them. Um, and lots of people will say that they're too far gone, but um, we know that that's not the case. We know that uh, streams all over the country and all over the world, in fact, have been revived from um, from pretty dire straits. Ngāti Daikawa believes that each and every waterway in this region is significant to them, um, and uh, we want to do something about it. Um, our iwi um, have taken steps um, in recent times to regain um, some of the management and uh, governance over some of these waterways and in fact we're in um, conversations now with people about how to appropriately manage uh, waterways like this. Um, this stream here of course is particularly significant to us uh, because it's so close to us. Our people didn't and, and I think this applies to almost every marae, kainga, every place that our tūpuno ancestors settled uh, they didn't settle on accident. Um, they weren't random um, settlements. They were very strategically placed settlements. Our people knew that they needed fresh water to survive. Uh, they, in fact, even knew um, about the qualities of water, um, that being that uh, you know spring water is of a very high quality, and quite often they would aptly name a stream, uh, for example, Waiadiki, or a water of the gods or a water of chiefs um, and uh, they, they knew this you know um, we know that each and every stream in this um, region um, requires a lot of time and effort but we're willing to give our time um, and we hope that other communities will join with us to uh, to restore some of these streams and will it through that improve the habitat for tuna? Yeah, Is I think so. Is tuna part of their future vision? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, Māori take a holistic kind of view to this. It's not just about um, one aspect within the waterway. It's about um, caring for the entire waterway right through the food chain. Um, and, you know, water quality obviously is right there as well. Tuanang Orokawa, uh, the, uh, the Māori education institution here in, in Ōtaki, um, has been talking about tuna for a long time um, and in more recent times we've been talking about the importance of the event of catching tuna. Uh, we know that um, you can pick up a book and you can read about catching tuna and you can uh, write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to a child and, and transmit it that way uh, or through a book or, or through the internet but there's something special about catching tuna. And we know that uh, if we take our our children and our nieces and nephews and our mokopuna or grandchildren down to a stream and we sit there while the autumn rains come uh, and often come hard um, and we wait for the tuna to come and then we catch them that act of uh, and that event of preparing and undertaking the catching of the tuna, returning them to our home places, storing them and then, uh, you know, uh, preparing them and, and cooking them and serving them on our marae is very, very important. There's nothing quite like it in the world, really. So we rely on uh, the catching and preparation of tuna as an act or an event that we can transmit our culture. Um, there's a special, special thing there for us. 
Um, there are idioms and um, uh, whakatauki and all sorts of things that are said when you're catching tuna that you don't say otherwise. Um, I uh, know that when you go down to the stream and it's running like spaghetti, uh, you know, that there are tuna just everywhere, that there are special things that, that can be said to describe that that probably wouldn't describe anything else. So it's really, really important for Māori, for tangata whenua, to be able to um, undertake that event and undertake that act. We uh, have he- here in Ōtaki have tried uh, and have been successful in involving young people in, in doing that, and we know now that uh, people that have the knowledge to catch and preserve tuna we know that they are interacting and, and, and pulling in those young ones that are interested um, and uh, that's really pleasing to see. Uh, we have um, each March or April um, when the rains come we have people that go out to these traditional sites and gather tuna um, for the mere fact, of, almost for the mere fact of uh, to be able to um, to catch them and and undertake that cultural transmission. It's not so much about the food, although I must say that the uh, food is pretty nice as well. I'm not a big tuna my, eater myself, but I know that um, one important thing for Māori is to be able to serve a culturally appropriate food. And so when you're in Ōtaki, you would probably not eat koda or, or pāwa. You would probably most likely to eat tuatua, pipi uh, or tuna and uh, when we have our marae um, at our marae we often have things like chicken and uh, and meats that aren't um, traditional to our area And uh, but I think there's something to be said for being able to, to uh, serve some of that culturally appropriate food, it really does lift the, uh, enhances the mana of the guests We've obviously talked about the cultural harvest, but too now there's a commercial fishery behind it too. Um, most for most of it for export, so it doesn't even stay here. Mm. What are your thoughts on that, on the commercial fishery? Well, we know that the commercial, the quota management system, I think, is a step in the right direction. It just doesn't quite go far enough, and um, it doesn't recognise um, some cultural aspects. Um, we know here in Ōtaki that we have commercial fishermen that come in from outside the area. They don't know our streams the way we do. They don't feel an obligation and a responsibility to the streams the way we do. And so they very much come in um, very vigorously, fish a stream and disappear for a year. And uh, they have, there's no consequence um, for them. I, I don't knock them for needing to earn their uh, living. But uh, what I do knock is the policy and the the system around it that allows for this. Um, We've had occurrences in this area where uh, commercial fishermen have come in um, and they haven't had their nets tagged uh, like they should have. They should be um, uh, visually, they should have a tag on it identifying their nets. And we know that they don't do that always here and I don't know whether or not that's a... Um, an issue for the Ministry uh, for Primary Industry now, but it, it, I think it should be. And uh, what we know is that they're very vigorously fishing our streams and that the numbers are dropping dramatically and have done over the last uh, few decades. Um, we also know that uh, if uh, local people were able to take their uh, customary take and that there was some recreational take in there, we think that numbers would be able to survive if not pick up. But we know that there's being a, uh, there is a big, huge dent 
being made by commercial fishermen and uh, we've witnessed that on occasion where uh, commercial fishermen have tied nets together uh, the entire width of a stream and placed these nets you know um, a few 50 metres apart or however it might be and, and you can annihilate a population overnight like that and that's what we don't want to see um, that's something that we we really feel aggrieved about, you know, when those sorts of activities are, are undertaken in, in our backyard. But of course, this is done under the cover of night. Eels are nocturnal and they uh, are generally fished overnight, and so you don't see these people coming and going. Um, but we know that if they were local fishermen, uh, and if they, we, we know that we would have more of a responsibility than that. And if you were just taking customary. Uh, fish or you were just taking recreational fish then hopefully we wouldn't be making the big dents that some of those other uh, takes have done. Tēnei te mihi kia pātaka moa no Ngāti Raukawa with our Changing World producer Veronica Maduna. We've posted up some links about pātaka you can head to radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Charles Royal's start as a chef is a familiar one that we've heard a few times here on the show, and that is, as a kid, he watched his mum cook, and with mum's influence, the kitchen became his office space. Inevitably, a few years later, he became a restaurateur, and then business owner. With his book, Cooking with Charles Royal, published in 2010, partnerships formed with international markets and running cooking tours, he's pretty busy. So I was lucky enough to spend a morning with Charles and experience firsthand the food tour. 1979, we moved to Paraparumu, and um, I did one year schooling at Paraparumu College when it first started. Yes. And uh, pretty well from there, that's when the army kind of phase came into my cooking. So, so pretty well growing up, three boys, and I was the middle child. Um, I always went to the kitchen with my mum, so you know, uh, cooking was a passion from a from a young age. Won my first um, cooking competition when I was five, making pancakes at the local gala day with the help of mum, of course. But uh, yeah, we got the first prize from there. Cooking became a passion. Charles grew up in Paraparomu, which borders Wellington, and got his first job as a cleaner at a delicatessen fitting really because at least he was still learning about food. From that first win with his pancakes, 10 years later at 15, Charles worked as a chef with the New Zealand Army. Today, with his culinary expertise and knowledge in traditional Māori plants, he's become, well, an entrepreneur. It's here in Rotorua that we meet. He picks me up from a downtown cafe. His green van doubles as a whānau car and transportation for tourists. Let's um, go on one of the uh, food tours here in Rotorua. You used to run a restaurant in Rotorua, didn't you, yeah, Charles? Copper Creole. Yeah, Copper Creole um, came from New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah, that's my inspiration to why I do what I do now as a uh, as a Maori chef. Being able to uh, move in between traditional foods and contemporary foods. So once you go into that realm of um, traditional, well, then you've got to stick to the rules. Where contemporary, you can become a bit more um, you know, experimental. And, um, how you can use a lot of you know, what, what we have as an ongoing. Yes, or Māori 
medicine yeah, rongoa. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was reading, obviously, you know, a bit about you online, Charles, and your CV is basically Army first, then Air New Zealand second. Yes, is that right? Yes. Then after that, did you open a restaurant in Paraparu? Yep, yep, Briar Patch. Briar Patch, then yep. you sold that, came to Rotorua. Yep. Is that when you opened? Copper Creole. Copper Creole. Yep. And then after that, yep. is that where you... We sold that. Sold that. Yep. And then Kinaki. And huh. then, yeah, Kinaki developed from there. Kinaki Wild Herbs is Charles' whānau-based company. As part of the business, he harvests traditional plants, including horopito, pikopiko, and kawakawa. Now, some come in plant or powdered form. The kaupapa, or purpose of the business, is to supply local and international cuisine markets with indigenous Māori herbs. But it's a business that's multi-layered. Kinaki was all about quite a few things, really. It was about being able to um, supply an ingredient to market, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it also had a tourism arm to it as well, like what we're doing today. How much yeah. does the weather play on your ability to do the food tour? Well, I, no, I have the attitude that you should be able to go out in any you know, conditions as long as it's not a big major storm. Yeah. You know, because this is what New Zealand's all about. Yep. You know, it's all about changing weather patterns, being able to fit into you know, those weather patterns because they always change. Yes. Um, you know, nothing, nothing can beat an umbrella or a raincoat and gumboots. <laughs> I don't let it play a major factor in what I do. I always have a plan B. And was that an intentional business move as to take advantage of the tourism aspect of Rotorua? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once I, once I finished the um, restaurant kind of scene, I wanted something what was um, kind of something I enjoyed more. You know, restaurant work be can become quite monotonous after a while. So I wanted something that was a little bit different and being able to um, do what I do now. Was there a little bit of a lull there for a while, Charles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially after the, um, you know, finishing the restaurant kind of work and wanting mm. to do something a little different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's all part of, you know, winding down and basically winding back up to, um, you know, to get cracking again. Well, when I came to Rotorua again, you know, um, I've got an uncle that used to be a taxi driver here, Hoppy Callaghan, and uh, he turned up at my restaurant in Copper Creole one time with a handful of pickle pickle, and he says to me, oh, have you ever tried putting this on the menu? So at that time I was kind of doing, you know, different types of breads, and I made this bread that was, um, we called it a Creole bread, Creolo bread, and it was similar to a one I made in a big... Um, muffin tin. I've got it in my book and basically it's called Buns on the Run and it was similar to Ariwana but a lot spongier and a little sweeter as well okay. and uh, what I did was I put a rosette or a little swirl of garlic butter on the top and stuck a pickle pickle in it and sent it out to these tourists that were sitting on the, um, the front table they were like, I think they were from um, Germany. Anyway the waiter took the um, the bread up to the table and they asked, you know, what's this and what does it mean? So he couldn't tell them, so I went out and explained what it meant. And from there, it pretty well developed into um, a signature 
signature garnish, you know, and it was um, pretty small. And I thought to myself, you know, something like that can make a, um, a dish, you know, quite beautiful, really. You know? And no one had been doing it before, so I thought, right, let's see what happens from here. So, and that was, man, that was about nine years ago when I had Copper Creole. So it's yeah. been a little while, yeah. And then you went from using herbs as a garnish to actually having it as a as a kai to eat. Yeah, as an yeah. ingredient. As an ingredient. Yeah, yeah. So pretty well from there, I realised that you know you have to. Um, no wonder it hasn't come out before because you have to have the ingredient. So I ended up getting the ingredient and um, using it for my tours, and then other you know restaurants wanted to know and cafes and suppliers so they all started emailing me and making phone calls and all that kind of stuff and all of a sudden um, yeah we just started sending it off and we're working with a, um, a whānau over in Taumaranui and we were harvesting um, pickle pickle from there and then pretty well I just connected with different people that were um, part of different iwi and made connections and now they um, supply me. How did you find the place in Taumaranui? Oh, they're actually um, whānau or old friends oh. of um, my wife who went to school there. And uh, they we set up a tourism venture with them, which called um, Go Bush um, at Tōmaranui. And it's a, um, a whānau over there that um, we still work with now and taking tourists over there as one of our food tours. And um, that's where we did our pickle, first Pickle Pickle project. What does harvesting pickle pickle entail? Does it have to grow in certain areas? Yeah, How, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, seasonal. It depends on where you are as well because, you know, um, deer love it, you know, possums love it, you know, pigs love it. They'll just root everything up in the ground, you'll see it. You'll know as soon as you go out there if the pigs are around because all the, all the roots are all pulled up, you know, the fern roots. So they get in and pull everything up and so they kill all the pickle pickle too because they eat it they like the um because it's a rhizome you see yeah the ferns because i did a, a project with crop and food research uh seven years ago when i first started doing all this and uh down in palmy and that was part of our project was to go up to tomaranui and measure every day the growth of the plants and how many plants grew in a certain area like one stage we had twenty thousand plants Oh. And we had to measure them and you know, measure that, uh, record all the um, temperatures and was it raining, was it snowing, time. So it was a lot of work, but it um, paid off in the end. For other areas, Charles, that you spoke about that harvest uh, pickle pickle, where are those areas located? Or is it a secret? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a secret, but you know, um, it grows everywhere. You know, we, we harvest from Tomaranui right through. You know, um, we've got farmers that have got private land that that um, allow us to go into their bush. We lease land from um, from different um, hapu trustee we trust as well. So, you know, we build tracks as well. So we just don't go on there and and take all their pickle pickle. We um, you know, we go out and lease their land, and we also um, say to them that we'll build tracks as well because once you got the tracks, and you know where all the pickle pickle was, 
and there's also an education component in there long term. I've worked with different um, trusts to put in um, uh, pickle pickle gardens like at um, Horo Horo. Oh yes, yep. yes. Yeah, um, we put in a pickle pickle garden with the um, with the young whanau up there, and um, basically they gave us a uh, an acre of um, of um, bush, which is like all backs onto farmland, and then they fenced it off, and we uh, transplanted all the um, pickle pickle into one spot and kept all the. Uh, all the stock and the goats and uh, any anything that'll eat pickle pickle will get in there and eat it because it's so juicy. Still in the uh, van here with Mighty Chef uh, Charles Royal. Uh, Charles, where where are we heading into? Um, well, we're heading down towards uh, now. What's, uh, down Curtis Road, I think it is. Oh, Curtis Road with. Yep. So this is where we've turned off, is that the yep. way towards Whakatane from Rotorua? Yep. yep, yep, State Highway 30. Yep, so we've just turned off for a little tiki tour. This is all part of my um, kōrero that I give to um, tourists when they come for a, uh, a Māori food tour out to Soda Springs. See that? Yes. Yep, there's, a, um, there's a pheasant, a hen. A pheasant? Yep, there's a hen, yep. So this is back of Moose Lodge. Okay, so this is all a golf course over here. Oh. Mm. for Koreans, but once upon a time the um, um, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth used to um, go here all the time. Queen Elizabeth? Yep, wow. back in the day. Now she goes to Hooker Lodge. Yeah, so as part of my um, tour, and also like um, we, I work with some of the whānau down here and doing um, um, uh, functions, weddings. Um, I did Cliff Curtis's wedding here. Jeez, I didn't even know he was married. Yep. So, yep. Tapuai Kura. Yep. This is a... This is a marae. Oh, sorry, I didn't see the whare nui. Um... Oh, it's on the side. Oh, it's on the other side, right. Yeah. Yeah. But also, it's a kura as well. So, with me working with pure cruisers from Lake Rotoiti, okay, this is one of our um, stop-off points of where we just um, pull up uh, out here on the lake because over the back is called Manu Pirua Springs you can only get there by boat so I wind it all in with my tours yes. you see so this is it yep. Tapu Waikura School oh yes and here's the whare nui Tapu Waikura a hatupatu marae is somewhat off the beaten track nestled in the shores of Lake Rotuiti two years ago it hosted the wedding of Rotorua actor Cliff Curtis it's his Fano Marai. Charles Royal was one of the chefs. He explains more about the area. Beautiful. Yeah, there's Moose Lodge. See Moose Lodge up on Wow, that's the nice. Moose yeah. Lodge. Yeah. the Foda. That's the Mona there. Atafoda. I've never been this way. Oh, yeah. I've always been on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, not many people know about it. Yeah. And do you tell your um, food, foodie... Uh, Food tour fans, this is the venue of Pukunas' yep. yep. wedding. This is the one. <laughs> yeah. And so, how much co- cooperation or how much do you work with Marae, Charles? Um, over the years, I've worked with quite a few different uh, yep. Marae around the country, you know, uh, from Wanangas to just helping out at, um, at different, uh, um, you know, kura as well. Uh, 
Yeah, different marae. I have, um, you know, get asked to do different um, talking engagements and cooking classes. Uh, also, gathering out, going out, gathering and just talking about what they have available in their bush. And it must vary, um, you know, what they ha- have available in oh, their yeah. bush to suit another iwi. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. You know, because every iwi and every area or area is different. What you got growing in there, there's things that you um, that you can get up north. You know, a good example is Kumaraho, that you can't um, get anywhere south of well, of Pyroar, I think it's about the the, the furthest south I've seen yeah. uh, Kumaraho. But I do know that it grows down the east coast as well in certain places. But can you describe what Kumaraho is? Kumaraho is a uh, rungoa that's used as a tea. Um, and it's really good for your lungs, so if you've got a bad cough phlegm, it pretty well you know, stops it straight away, especially that phlegm <coughs> all the yeah. time. And uh, yeah, you have a cup of that, and pretty well in you know, 30 seconds it's all gone. Does it look like a leaf or a. Yeah, it's a funny one because you've got to really watch out because it's similar to tutu. Tutu? Yeah, tutu. I just saw some on the bank there, I'll show you it. Oh, okay. See that leaf there, that green one, I won't stop on the corner. Oh, okay. The green one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. You gotta no, but there's plenty around here. Man, everything's green though, Charles. How do you? How could you have spotted that? Oh, only because Mind I you. know what it yeah, looks like. Yeah, that's right. Know? Yeah. But I'll grab one. There's plenty around. Cool. Yeah. So Tutsu uh, and Kumaraho similar. Oh, yeah. Oh, they look similar. You would think they were the same plant, right. but okay. I'll tell you what. If you had a if you had a cup full of Tutu, you'd be dead in about a minute. Okay. Yeah. If you have Kumaraho. You'll be better in 30 seconds. So you really got to know what to look for. And what can you? What makes them different? The smell, the no, texture. No, it's actually the um, it's the flower. You don't get the flower until like now. It's coming out now. Wow. Yeah, and the flower is like a whole lot of white, creamy kind of looking flowers stuck together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the leaves are similar to. Um, and you know that it won't be growing anywhere south because it just don't grow down south. Okay, right. Yeah, so unless you're up up north, and there's only certain areas there that you can um, get it, you're um, you're pretty well right down the south. But you know you got to know what you're looking for. Geez, have you learned the hard way? What? Yep, sure have. Have you? Yep, because once I read in this book once upon a time, and it said that if in the old days the old people used to eat the um, um, the f- the flower. Okay, flower. yeah, you couldn't eat the leaf, but you could eat the you could eat the flower, and you could also eat the juice of the berry, but not the pips. And the berries are like the size of black currants, or even smaller. Okay. Of dried peppercorns, you know. So you gotta have a ton to be able to even get a drink out of it. And so we're just leaving um, Tapuai Kura Marae, uh, State Highway 30 outside Otorua. Um and I'm here as part of, um, well, Charles Royal is taking me on one of his uh, food tours that he that he hosts uh, based from Rotorua. Because Air New Zealand, that took you all over the world, didn't it, Charles? Yeah, yeah, as an employee it did. You back worked in the for day. the business class f- food. Yeah, 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 chef. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, we're all part of, um, of the flight kitchen when it used to belong to Air New Zealand. And what happened was, uh, after I left the army, the next day I got a job with Air New Zealand. 
and back in those days, you know, it was big money. You know, for a week for a fully qualified chef, you got, you know, uh, $1,500 a week. That's with un unlimited overtime. So we used to do 10 days on and have one day off, but, you know, you worked for it. And uh, But then as things kind of tightened up and, you know, yeah. sold off in New Zealand, sold their catering arm and uh, everybody took redundancy and so I jumped on the bandwagon and said, yep, time for a new change of job and I opened my first restaurant. So when you fly now, Charles, on <laughs> New yeah. Zealand, um, oh, I'm not too sure if you do business class style, but, you know, what's the food like? Oh, the kai was beautiful. Oh, I really think in New Zealand, um, just really good service more than anything. The kai was nice, and there's plenty of it. And how long were you in New Zealand? Uh, I was in New Zealand for four years. Oh, four years. Oh, that's not too bad, that's eh? It's not too bad. It's enough to sort of yeah, dip your feet in, get a taste yeah, of it. Yeah, get a taste yeah. of it. I wish I had longer, but, you know. Um, yeah, all good things uh, come to an end at one stage or another, I'm sure <laughs> yeah, they do. Right. That also inspired me to um, open a restaurant because that's all you heard of chefs who are at New Zealand, they were, um, at Air New Zealand, they were leaving to start their own restaurants. Right. Yeah, I thought to myself, I like Cajun Creole, and that's why when I worked there I went to the States. But I really like the idea of Cajun and Creole cooking having two which distinguishes the difference between one or another and Cajun was all about authentic style of cooking and also had a story and um, you know um, and different flavours and you had to stick by those rules yeah. it's just like any other kind of art you have traditional art and you have contemporary or modern style so I thought well they had Cajun which was like uh, traditional and then they had Creole, which was like um, all the modern style of Cajun cooking. If we had a Māori cuisine, because, you know, in Rotorua and having a Cajun restaurant and then seeing that, apart from the hotels doing hangi and concert, nobody really was doing any form of Māori food or Māori cuisine. So I started to um, look at changing my whole um, kaupapa on, um, on cooking. And then when my uncle turned up with that pickle pickle and said to me if I'd ever tried, um, ever thought about putting it on the menu, or tried cooking with it, I thought, well, why don't I just put it in that bread as the waiter went out and give it a try and see what comes of it. And um, pretty well from there they wanted to learn more. So um, I kept on using it in my restaurant and then I started bottling it and preserving it and going out and, you know, talking with um, a lot of different, you know, kumatu and kui are out there, getting to know people, um, learning different ways of um, how, you know, when you go on wānanga, different whānau have different ways of cooking at the marae. Yes. You know, and just learning those different little techniques gave me just more kind of um, information to add to my repertoire, you know. So the more I learned, um, the more that I could um, put into what I do now, food tours, uh, any kind of cooking technique I can think of, I'll give it a go. Mm. Yeah, you've got a nice, nice office, nice office space. So then, Charles, can people walk into to the local supermarket and find 
um, kinaki piko piko in there? No. 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 How do you so how does one get a hold of Oh, I don't get on my website. Oh, okay. www.maorifood.com. Now, I bought that years ago when we um, secured that name. Yes. And when the dot-com era was the big thing. Yeah, the big boom. Yeah, and I jumped in and grabbed maorifood.com because I uh, I realised that it would be um, easy for people to uh, understand more than anything. See, I cut everything when I went to Germany with the internet. I didn't take my cell phone. And, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. Um, the amount of people that were just on them it was unbelievable. And, really? Yeah, and coming back, I really had to force myself into, you know, having to switch the phone back on because I knew I'd lose business if I didn't. But after, yeah, not having it after all that time, it, um, yeah, it's something that you seem to uh, re- rely on after back a while. Back into the, you know, work mode, eh, yep. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So we're pulling up here now. Yeah, this is at. Um, uh, Tamatia Road. Tamatia Road. Yep. Um, Lake um, State Highway 30, uh, Lake Rotuiti, heading towards um, the east coast. Yeah, even though there's a little bit of rain, but I'm sure that it's um, nice underneath the uh, the canopy. Yep. So we'll just go in for a bit of a walk and. Okay, yes. Kia ora, no Ngati Pikiao Chef Charles Royal. Now, coming up in next week's show. We head into Matafaura Forest, Rotsuiti, to gather traditional Māori kai. In the meantime, there's a few pictures posted up on the webpage right now. Head to radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. Also, if you need to get in touch with us, uh, you can send us an email, teahika at radionz.co.nz or search teahika, T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A, on Facebook. <laughs> teahika Radio New Zealand National About 30 minutes from Rotorua is an area called Waitangi. Yes, there are a few small towns in Aotearoa with that name. This one is also known as Soda Springs. There are no flashy signs or buildings. Instead, from the road, it looks like a long wooden fence. And when you walk through to the other side, there is a huge mineral pool. Pitipi shows me around Soda Springs. Ko Piripi Corona Takuinga, ko Nati, ko Fanapanui Tuhoi, me Munia Portal side. There's my wine, he's actually my my Tene Kopapa, or the Kyoto. We're actually standing on the Fenway Waitangi Soda Springs, me and I. I cut the point. Is this a whanau owned business? Um, well, no, um, way back it was just an, it was just all open, and um, prior to that, it just got just started getting degraded and everything. So the whānau decided to get get together and mahi mahi on the whenua. And so, is this open to members of the public? It's open to members of the public, so everybody, uh, but mainly it's all no, not pukeko. Not pukeko, kiora. Can we just walk closer to the pools? So um, this is Soda Springs. Uh, um, so is this a larger ngafa? <laughs> uh, prior to that, it was, was all just small and just really um, walk along the whole place. Um, they, they've just come in and they, they got a bullion to come and mahi it out to, and, and to make it a bit bigger. bigger. And so where does the name Soda Springs come from? 
notícia. Ali estão para o para o final da time, né? Capai. Otherwise. Yep. Does it get busy during winter? I bet it does. Um, it does. Uh, I think most of the time, summer's, summer's the best time. Yep. Aye. Summer's the best time. It looks hot, but I mean. Tenopai. Everyone just comes here to rest the body and look after the tenano when they do come in here. It's not a pool to go and just splash around yeah, the TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mum will look after the body. So, what about what? Half an hour should do it? Oh, the longer the better. The longer the, the longer the better, but the only time is when you get out, you don't want to eat, you get tired. Yeah, yeah I bet it does, eh? When you get out, you get all sleepy. Um, Kate Swatikitera, Pirapi, thank you. Oh, kia ora. Ai, kia ora. That's us for another week. Next week, Marae Rakaraku is back and talks about Ngāti Kahunganu and their position on restorative justice. And want to know your pickle pickle from your kawakawa or horopito from your tea coca? I'm talking native Māori plants with Māori chef Charles Royal. He mihi tēnei kia koutou katoa ngā kai whakarongo e tautoko ana i tēnei hōtaka. Ki ngā kai kōrero mo te wiki nei, ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rātapu, mai te whānau, a tia hi kā kia tātou katoa, mauri ora.